Welcome to Mill Resource Radio, where we highlight military and veteran support organizations. Hear directly from organization leaders and those who've benefited from their services. Thousands of organizations exist, but if you don't know about them, how do you seek their help? Join us for discovery, access, and knowledge about effective military and veteran organizations, sharing their missions and accomplishments directly with you. And now here are your hosts, Linda Crater and Les Davis. Good morning, everyone. We are here today. Pam Eggleston is with me as co-host, and we have a very special program for you today. Scott Fowler is joining us, and Scott is not only the father of an autistic child, but he's worked in public education for over two decades, starting as a teacher, then assistant principal, principal, then working in central office capacity with a lot of special needs teachers as well as those uh, specializing in autism. I think there's so much mystery about what autism is and what it covers, and we know very well that in the military community, families that are taking care of children on the spectrum have some special challenges. We also know Uh, through my work with veteran caregiver, that there are a number of wounded warrior caregivers who are also what we call sandwich caregivers, those taking care of children with autism, as well as taking care of a family member with uh, combat wounds. So we are delighted to offer you an educational session, an interesting session, and something that's going to touch your heart. And with that, I would like to introduce Mr. Scott Fowler. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you, Linda. Good morning, and I welcome everybody that's joining us uh, this morning. Linda, you started off with... Uh, you know, just a basic piece of what is autism. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's real important that we step back and say, okay, what exactly are we uh, dealing with? What are we talking here? You know, the, the, the clinical definition of autism looks much different than the real life picture. So uh, the clinical definition, uh, the spectrum disorders refer to uh, a group of really complex neurodevelop- neurodevelopmental disorders. And they're characterized by three main uh, areas, uh, repetitive and characteristic patterns of behavior, difficulties with social communication interaction, and, um, and, and the interface that goes with that. And so that being said, that is a broad medical term, but what it looks like as a parent uh, or you know, for, from the perspective of a caregiver, is your child likes to uh, stack blocks repetitively, frequently. That is their favorite thing to do. <clears throat> so they might be on the kitchen floor, and where other children might start uh, engaging in kind of reciprocal play with a sibling or a playmate, the autistic individual will, is more apt to be uh, a parallel player. Um, and what then, does that mean, Scott? What does well, parallel player mean? Well, a parallel player, particularly in the autism community, indicates an autistic person attempting to mimic the social order of the other kids that they're playing with. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is they lack the um, social communication pieces to, to start a discussion with other boys and girls. Hey, could I play with you? Uh, can I share my toy with you? They don't have the uh, social capabilities to start that conversation, nor can they read that conversation. Hmm. So when we talk about as parents, 
and as clinicians, when we're looking at communication and interaction, what this looks like, for example, on the early uh, spectrum stage, uh, up around six months, is if you are holding your baby and having baby talk time, and they don't make an effort to mimic uh, some discussion with you, all those little coos and ahs and vocalizations, and they're not making eye contact, you know, that's a time um, that we need to start talking about um, getting uh, time with your pediatrician. But that's an example of one part of that communication socialization piece. As they age and they start um, uh, engaging with peers and play groups, and you notice that your child is sitting maybe near the other children, but not socializing, not making eye contact. These are the kinds of things that we are looking at under that kind of uh, definition. And the symptoms are, you know, you see them very early in early childhood, as early as six months. Uh, but most parents really start picking them up on those about, uh, about a year old, uh, 12 to 18 months. You know, Scott, it's interesting because when you do look at children, I'm picturing what you were talking about with the child sitting a little bit off to the side. I'm sure that some parents look at that and say, well, my child is just shy. So is there a latency in getting a diagnosis or talking to the doctor? Or is this something you think people are more aware of these days so they're proactive? Well, I... I do like the fact that uh, autism is being discussed much more broadly now than it was just, say, 10 years ago. Um, But my best advice to parents has always been, if you have an inkling, mother's instinct, that something is just not quite right, don't wait. Um, It's particularly with spectrum disorders. Early intervention is the key to success and maximizing uh, a young person's life experience so they can realize their fullest potential. And a lot of times, um, early intervention between the ages of uh, two and six years old will mitigate a lot of problems that happen down the road when they start moving into elementary and middle and high school. Now, that being said, um, you know, I know what happened with us as a family. Uh, my, my son, uh, my seven-year-old, is autistic. And I know what occurred with us is what I've heard repeatedly over uh, a long breath of time working in this community, where uh, my wife would take um, our children to a play group, and uh, her, her friends, her social group, uh, would all be together and they would say, oh, well, he's just, just like you said, a little bit shy or, you know, uh, they are um, – that he's not necessarily playing with other boys and girls. Well, that'll come in time. You know, so you have a lot of reinsurance. But I would say to the mothers out there that if it seems like your support network continues to say those same kinds of things, they are noticing that there's an issue. You know, you can't ignore that there is something going on. And the best thing to do is to start going to get help. And uh, and we can talk a little bit about what that looks like. It's kind of a, a scary process on the outset. In the community, it's referred to as the diagnostic odyssey. Uh, statistically, uh, most children are diagnosed between the ages of four and five years old. It takes about two to three years of behavioral observation 
uh, to correctly diagnose an individual. So it's not as simple as walking into your pediatrician's office and saying, this is what I'm seeing, and you receive a diagnosis. It's much more extensive. You know, Scott, this brings to mind, and Pam, please jump in whenever you want to. Um, It seems to me that if you are in the military and you are unsure whether your child has a disorder or if you're relocating, you're PCSing, and you change pediatricians, etc., that there is a higher percentage chance that it will take longer for your child to be diagnosed or seen as different because you're relating those other symptoms to simply the relos. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And from my perspective, Linda, uh, looking at the military community, one other piece that we want to bring up here is no two pediatricians may necessarily look at spectrum disorders exactly the same way Mm. and you know then that's something to be kept in mind so one of the things uh, that I always advocate for and is readily available online it's free is something called the MCHAT it stands for the modified checklist for autism and toddlers you can google that very quickly and what you do is download it and there are yes and no questions on a survey form and so you know with regard to the military community, the minute that you start feeling that something isn't exactly right here, um, I I would take a look at going ahead and downloading that because mm-hmm. it will guide your discussion with the pediatrician and it will keep that discussion focused. And That's so- an excellent suggestion. I'll make sure I put that as a resource on our article um, because it does seem as though the strains of the military with the the changes, constant changes. Uh, And as you said, no two pediatricians may look at the spectrum the same way. I have a question about the medical training of physicians. Um, Is this a deep subspecialty within the pediatric medical community so that you need to seek specialists for the diagnosis? I know you need a lot of help after the diagnosis, but what about initially? Well, initially what starts out, um, I'll describe what we've done uh, as a family and what I've advised others to do. Uh, But to answer your question, yes, it is subspecialty. It's very, very specific. So uh, we have to understand the difference between a pediatrician and a developmental pediatrician. Your pediatricians are tasked with the basic care for your child. So early on in life, all your neonatal care through the life process um, of, of your child. But when we start looking at spectrum-based disorders, pediatricians are broadly trained, but what you need specifically is a developmental pediatrician. And this is it presents a big challenge for the military families, mm-hmm. partri- particularly with all the, the movement that goes on, because a, right. many, many times what occurs is you may be eight months to a year to get an appointment with a developmental pediatrician. And, of course, you could have a duty station change anywhere along there, along that way. So that will certainly disrupt the process. So what I would advise uh, to military families is immediately complete the MCHAT, have a discussion with your pediatrician, and have your pediatrician write scripts for occupational therapy and speech therapy evaluations. That will help guide the conversation down the road. And those clinical specialists are specially trained to look at particular areas 
um, with regard to uh, two of the major diagnostic uh, criteria, the speech portion, and then there is a sensory portion. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, specifically, once they do their evaluation, they're going to have definite assessment tools that they're looking at and um, that will help guide the pediatrician to guide you to a developmental pediatrician. So typically you're looking at three to four professionals to help in this process. My goodness, Scott, thank you so much for that background. And we will continue after a short break. We are talking with Scott Fowler about autism today and the care and support of those caring for children with autism. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a family caregiver in the military community? Join us on VeteranCaregiver.com. In the military and veteran community, there are 5.5 million caregivers of our nation's injured, ill, and wounded. Whether your family member served in World War II or in the most recent Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there are unique needs of military and veteran caregivers. Navigating any medical system takes skill and help in obtaining good care. Veteran Caregiver has access to a rich network of advocates and organizations to assist you. Find excellent resources, short informative videos, an active Facebook community, and empathetic support. Veteran Caregiver supports those from every service branch and those who served in any conflict. Need information on sandwich caregiving? EFMP or aging issues? VeteranCaregiver.com provides information and community to those managing busy lives with compassionate care. That's VeteranCaregiver.com. Support for those who care. discussion with Scott Fowler about autism and the care and support of parents with autistic children. Uh, Scott, I think one of the biggest things that we constantly hear as we walk through this community are the basic challenges that parents have with parenting a child on the spectrum. Everything from sibling strain and marital strain um, and the joys as well. So I was wondering if you could discuss some of those challenges with us now. Absolutely. Um, I have never known a family that I've worked with in the last couple of decades that has not gone through the basic challenges of parenting a child on the spectrum. And one of those first places that, that parents need to be aware of, you know, it's terrifying to have that diagnosis. Um, you know, frankly, when we got our, our diagnosis when Nicholas was about four and a half, it was crippling. Even though uh, my wife is a teacher, I'm certainly an educator, we thought we were prepared. But what was really unique is we grieved through this process very mm -hmm. differently. So one of the first things I would say, one of the biggest challenges is recognize that your spouse won't necessarily grieve in this process the same way you do. And you need to give them space uh, to do that. Now wow. it hits, yeah, it hits moms a lot differently. Uh, you know, when we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, um, 
moms are going to handle that much differently than, than fathers are. And so when we look at PTSD in the autism community, you know, a lot of times and, and you know, as a family, we were you know looking at that same uh, perspective being that, you know, we were going to have children and we were going to lead a rosy life. And then all of a sudden it didn't go that way. And what we saw as another one of our base challenges and one of the uh, parallels uh, that I want to point out here is the fact that, you know, everybody knows there are a lot of challenges to parenting toddlers and, and little people. But that strain eases when they get into the elementary and school age years. Um, what ends up happening for the autism community and the relation piece with PTSD is the fact that the stress and strain continues and it never abates. Mm. So it's really important when we talk about the basic challenges, the parents take care of themselves. And, you know, I, you know, there is some stigma in different segments of our community over uh, counseling, but I strongly encourage even strong parents who are really together uh, on, and on the same page with all areas and aspects of their marriage to go to counseling so that they can recognize some warning signs in each other, but also to give each other space and have a neutral way to voice their feelings and concerns. Now, moving a little bit beyond the basic parenting uh, challenges, you have some other societal challenges that come in on top of this. You know, we talked a little bit about um, play dates. You know, we have a real issue in the autism community with social attitudes of other parents, specifically mm -hmm. social disapproval. Um, so that weighs heavily, particularly on moms, because, you know, any parent is going to do everything they can to support their child. But one of the issues that occurs frequently in the spectrum disorder community is we look at uh, children that are uh, sensory seeking, and we'll talk about what sensory challenges are uh, here in a moment, but sensory seeking children and aggression and something called self-injurious behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens is the autistic are finding their way. Uh, and, you know, it can be on the early end with these play groups, two, three, four years old, where other parents will misread a sensory seeking child. So as I touched on earlier, it's great that there's a lot of awareness coming about the autistic. But when we start into our play groups and, you know, somebody else's child um, is, is, is dealing with your autistic child. And it happened to us. Uh, my son was very sensory seeking. He likes to hug and he mm -hmm. hugs too hard. Uh -huh. And it's very hard to explain that to a three-year-old because that's happening on two levels. On an emotional level, he's expressing love. But on a physiological level, and we're going to talk about sensory disorders right now because it's a very big challenge uh, with um, parents raising their children. Mm. Sensory disorders um, are misreads. Uh, we could get into a lot of medical uh, terminology and background. But they, uh, the autistic perceive sight, sound, taste, touch, all your physical elements much differently at times than what we call the neurotypical or normal uh, community. And so when you have that happen in a play group, and then maybe some misunderstandings about what's going on uh, in terms of dealing with an autistic child, that puts a lot of stress 
on moms and, and, to, and to dads to some extent, certainly. I think that this is I'm just so taken by just the conversation here. And um, Linda has been like, oh, do you want to chime in? And I'm like, I'm learning and I'm listening because I think that what you're saying is really important. I have several friends in the military that have an autistic child. Some of them have two. Some of them have two autistic children. And the, well, when you spoke and it's to- funny, it's funny that you say that because the prevalence rate, particularly with identical children, yes. uh, reaches upwards of 95 oh, percent. Uh, the typical. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it, it's significant. Oh. So, you know, when we talk about parenting strain, when you have one child who's autistic and you decide to have another child, the stats uh, met out to about between two and 18 chances. Uh, percent chance for a sibling, a second child to have the disorder. But if they're identical twins, it's it's much, much higher. Mm. And mm. then to add to that, we have something called comorbidity. Think of that as an associated issue. So, for example, if you have a sinus infection, you're most likely going to have a runny nose, clogged ears. Those are comorbid of the sinus infection. But when we deal with the autism community, we deal with three predominant areas. So it's first important to know that if you are a parent who has recently received a diagnosis or you think you're moving down that road, there's an 83% chance that your child will have one of the associated disorders. And I'm not going to delve into a lot of detail on those. They're very extensive, but just very basically, there are three main disorders. There are the attentional disorders, there are some psychiatric disorders, and some seizure-based disorders. And likelihood for that to occur for your child is two out of three at this point right now. Wow. And so that's something else that adds stress and strain. And then, you know, finally... Um, just on the parenting side of things, there is a significant price tag to all these early interventions. They're not always 100% picked up by insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have yeah. our co-pays, but the average autism family, family dealing with an, raising an autistic child, incurs between forty and sixty thousand dollars a year in additional expenditures of up and beyond their their basic medical care costs. So. You know, going back to the parenting strain piece, we know in the military community, you know, finances can be an issue. They're an issue for all of us, certainly, um, but they are of particular focus. And if those parents are not on the same page with finances, that's going to present an issue. Now, I have been asked many, many times, is the divorce rate higher for families on the spectrum? And there's a lot of studies out there. Anybody can Google uh, a study and say, well, yes, the divorce rate is X percent. Probably the most effective advice that I've ever given, uh, getting away from statistics, but just dealing with parents and working with parents, is to be able to say to them, if there was an issue in your marriage prior to your child being diagnosed on the spectrum, it will come full face because right. of the financial strain or if you know whatever other sector that they're not on the same page about. So it's really important that if they're not on that same page, this is where you go to couples counseling and therapy and get on the same page. Right. Because, you know, it it only stands to make sense if the issues were there, you know, previously, they're they're certainly going to be exacerbated by this. That makes complete sense. 
You know, Scott, it's, it's, I'm listening because I work with caregivers so often and you described it is PTSD in these families, but the difference between a family member, spouse, partner is profound when you have some choices. When it's your child, there are very, there are no choices. This is your child. And so your pressures are even greater than uh, taking care of a spouse or, or working with someone else who is able to process all of the same things just in a different way. You can talk intellectually about it, but with raising a child, you're actually really, um, the emphasis is much higher and more challenging, it appears, as you are trying to process this whole thing and grow and evolve with your child and, and do all the things that are possible to make for a higher quality of life. Oh, absolutely, Linda. I completely agree. And one of the issues that, that, that really raises um, concern in this community is when you are trying to not only co-parent, and deal mm-hmm. with normal life issues on, mm-hmm. on top of all the stressors that are in the military community, but also um, attending to uh, you know some daily life function uh, kinds of pieces uh, that are, are difficult due to the sensory um, issues that are incurred through the spectrum disorders. And one that uh, we dealt with was haircuts. Um, you know, everybody celebrates, uh, you know, uh, your child's first haircut and we take pictures and take hair clippings and, you know, those sorts of things. I have not met too many families, uh, and it, it definitely occurred with us that haircutting, for example, is really a difficult process. And to try and explain that to friends who are trying to be supportive to salon staff, to your spouse about how you're feeling is really difficult because, Linda, you hit on something that was really important. You know, you're struggling as a parent in this autism space to learn and understand your child. Mm -hmm. There's a favorite saying of mine within the community. uh, Once you know one autistic person, you know one autistic person, meaning (laughs) they are not the same. (laughs) Right. So, you know, and that's true of all humanity, certainly. But you know, the, the other piece becoming, um, you know, if you have a neighbor who has an autistic child and you have a child who is autistic, they may demonstrate some similarities, but rarely are they uh, in the same place. So the haircutting piece, um, I know it has made the rounds on Facebook recently of uh, a very talented uh, and very understanding barber. Mm-hmm. who laid down on the floor yes, yes, with yes. a little boy. If you've seen yes, this post, right? I have. Absolutely. And, you know, it yeah. just melted my heart because I know what yeah. we went through. Uh, and I'll describe that a little bit later in the segment. But I know what we went through uh, as a family to get our son, who is now getting ready to turn eight here next week, to be able to go through his first successful haircut. It has taken a little over six years. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But, you know, you see um, the effects of the community learning about spectrum disorders. You see somebody saying, look, I don't really know a lot about this, but I'm willing to go that extra step. But, you know, that brings a whole other level of strain to parents when you're there and having that happen. You know, Scott, I, I, I'm i learning a lot just as Pam is. And I, I think that 
this is such an important area to talk about. I'm so glad we're having this discussion today. We are going on a commercial break, and we will be back shortly. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. conversation with Scott Fowler about autistic children and the care and support of the parents of autistic children in the military. Scott, before the break, you were talking about your son's first haircut at the age of what? Uh, This particular haircut experience took place, uh, uh, that I'm going to relate to the audience, took place, he was about four and a half when this happened, not quite five. Okay. Okay. and to frame the, the whole story, haircuts are very difficult because there are a, a number of sensory mechanisms that need to uh, be addressed. Sound, sight, smell, certainly, uh, all of those kinds of things. And so typically uh, I use uh, what's called a social story. It's a picture story. And so it's very effective in all, for all toddlers to be used. But because the autistic are very visually acute – Um, You provide a series of pictures with just little short blurbs to describe the action. So two weeks before this particular incident, we start practice haircutting. And this is an ongoing skill that we work on in our household. I start with a picture story. We found some uh, books at uh, local retailers that were picture-based books. And then we moved into the actual practice of the haircutting in our home. All the way from sign in and waiting to how do we sit in the chair? Where do we put our hands? How do we sit? And then mimicking as much of the haircutting experience as we could. Uh, my son has a Play Doh set, it came with a pair of plastic scissors. We use that to practice and simulate the cutting of the hair because he always told me that the hair cutting hurts. And it's not obviously, you know, it does. It's not painful to have the haircut, but because their sensory misreads can be so profound, we later found out it was the sound of the shears cutting his hair that he just really could not tolerate, and he worked really into uh, an anxiety over that. So, getting back to this, you know, this short snippet, um, 
we had practiced and practiced and practiced and discussed it and talked about it. And then came time for us to go and get the haircut. At the time, Nicholas was just getting ready to turn five. My youngest son had uh, just turned three or was just about to turn three. And everything was moving very well. We got into the salon in our local mall. And, you know, they have the big glass fronts there so everybody can see the nice haircutting experience. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, right. so come on in and everybody's enjoying their haircut. You know, right. you know, that's just when we talk about parental strain, you know, I'm thinking abject terror. I want my child seated away from the main hub of activity, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to take what you get. And the perfect cataclysm happened on this day. They only had one chair in the middle of the salon. I asked if he could be moved, but it, that wasn't something that we could do. And, you know, my wife and I shot each other looks because we're thinking maybe just go and reschedule this because this isn't going to go well. But we had so programmed our son to be ready for this that if you don't go down the checklist and follow through, then he doesn't understand why. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really have a choice. We got in there, we started the hair cutting process, and one of the things that we did not account for was a woman was, uh, was having her uh, hair um, treated, and the chemical that was used in that just elicited such an olfactory sense that he started to go into what we call a sensory breakdown or a meltdown, and it looks just like what it sounds like. Um, First of all, we need to understand that when an autistic person has a breakdown, it often looks like a temper tantrum to everybody else. Uh, Um, That's not what it is. What it is is I am no longer able to cope with my environment. So I want our listeners to combine these two sensations. Number one, if you've ever been driving in the winter and your car began to slide on the ice, that moment of abject terror when you weren't in control Mm. combined with the physiological sense of having a migraine. If you know anybody that has migraine mm-hmm. uh, headaches, yeah. you know you know it's coming. You know you need to get to your medication. And if you don't, uh, you know what the result's going to be. So there is a physiological manifestation of pain when you have a sensory breakdown. So the autistic person is the last person that wants to have one of these things. Now, he had this. And you know you can imagine what this might have looked like. Out of the chair, on the floor, crying, shrieking, not screaming, mm-hmm. shrieking because mm-hmm. he's physically in pain. And, you know, you I mentioned the glass storefront. Well, the whole world gets to watch what's occurring here. Oh, no. And while this is occurring, uh, my wife uh, was attempting to soothe him. And sometimes, you know, she might be the right person in the moment or I might be the right person. It's kind of situational. And our three-year-old was right next to her, so she had it. And I managed – I just barely heard a woman and her little entourage that were moving um, across the storefront make some um, very difficult comments for a parent to hear about our parenting skills. And essentially, if that was my child, I would do this. And, you know, my wife had things. The shop was watching everything. So you've got that microscope right on you now. And uh, uh, the one thing that I wanted to do uh, wouldn't have been very Christian. I would have made up some new vocabulary words at that point. But what I, <laughs> what, I, what I chose to do was take an opportunity to educate. Now, did I intentionally use some of the 50 cent words based on the medical community? Yes, I did. 
but I explained that this wasn't a temper tantrum. My son's autistic. Mm-hmm. And right at that point, he came in and held, he came to me and held my hand and I looked down at him and he said, daddy, I'm ready. I want my hair cut. Oh my goodness. And so he had his breakdown and it's very important for parents to understand, don't try and stop them. Get things right. out of the way. You don't want them to right. hurt themselves, but they have to go through it mm-hmm. before they can kind of clear the mental register and they're ready to go on. Now, unfortunately, when this occurs, there's a fight or flight reflex that goes with it that's referred to as bolting. And it's just what it sounds like. Um, but it's important for parents to understand when an autistic child bolts, they're not necessarily running from you or anybody else. What they're doing is kind of running from themselves. They, mm-hmm. They're trying to escape um, the sensory overload that they have. And we know with Nicholas, when we have one, we always have a secondary and it's always much worse. Well, we were able to um, exit the salon and move ourselves out to the parking lot. And when we got to the parking lot, we had the second breakdown. But then what occurred after that was the group, the, the lady and her little entourage that I mentioned earlier, had followed us out and they were looking for an opportunity uh, to engage. And as my son was running through the parking lot, at some point, you know, as a parent, you have to say, this isn't safe. I have to get hold of him. And so I did. And he starts yelling things like, you're hurting me, let go of me, help oh. Okay, and that's all that this lady and her friends needed to have. You know, unfortunately, they call 911. We have a police response and it wasn't very pleasant. You can imagine because it looks like a domestic kind of situation. Right. Um, You know, it all ended up working out in the end, but it was a mentally exhausting day. Your friends who have neurotypical children don't understand the anxiety and strain that goes on. For just getting a basic haircut. Then you have dentists. You go out to eat dinner and they like to do the little happy birthday song. And if it's not planned for, that's something that can set them off the edge. So we talked about PTSD. You know, parents of children on the spectrum um, are going through this because you're always on guard for something else. Scott, I have a question. I, sure. I This sounds to me like um, this. this is – in a different way, and when I um, teach yoga to the folks um, I teach to, it's really about like trapped energy and riding the waves. Absolutely. And a lot of times, people—I mean, that's what it is. Even with people that aren't autistic, you know, you're dealing with stress in a different way. And because society has these judgments placed on it, and certain people don't understand those those various um, mechanisms to release stress, they look at a child and say you know, well, if that was my child, I would do this or I would do that. And all he was doing was riding the waves, as I like to say. You got to ride the wave. You got to go through it. You can't stop at it. You got to go through it. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy teaches us to go through it. You Sometimes you got to bring up this stuff and then, you know, uh, kind of process it. And in a way, your son knows that, I mean, his body, his spirit knows that he has to process that. Like, he can't push it down like, like everyone else does. I'm going to jump in here. I really like what you say about the energy that's trapped because that's really intuitively what's going on. Mm -hmm. You mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. That's one of the basic tenets uh, of CBT. 
and you have to release it. Now, you know, we typically want to release it in a positive way, but, you know, it's very difficult because you can't always ascertain what that trigger is going to be, no matter how well you plan. And when that happens, you're not only fighting your own strain and anxiety, um, you know, and the, the haircut example that I shared, um, you know, you can imagine what I was like, uh, you know, as a father and how I was feeling. My wife, sure. you know, was in tears. My three-year-old was in tears. It was a messy situation. So you have that anxiety, but also recognizing, you know, you're not stopping this. It has to go through to its natural conclusion. Absolutely. And, you know, and when Nicholas has one of his sensory breakdowns, he is both acutely aware, but also um, – not entirely engaged. So when we talk about the process later, he can tell you he cried and he screamed and it hurt him a lot, but he can't give more details than that. Right, right. I think it's important that that you process that and that that's understood. Um, And I think it's important that that these things are taught to the general population. Like a lot, you need to, I think people just need to be more compassionate, but at the same time. You're right. You know, you know, we all like to espouse our value system here in America yeah, as being yeah. compassionate, <laughs> right. um, but we don't right. always necessarily practice it. And one of the areas Absolutely. that you're touching on, Pam, are first responders and law enforcement. Yes, yes. And their understanding of these kinds of situations. You know, I have to break in because we're going on break shortly, but the purpose of this entire show was to try and raise awareness in the general community about what autistic parents are going through. Because I think that you read articles or you hear things that happen, but you don't really know what's going on. And your explanations and pictures, visual pictures you're drawing are fantastic. We're going on a short break right now, and we will be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. a dynamic woman? Sandra Beck and Linda Crater host Dynamic Women Talk Radio, bringing lively weekly shows in a roundtable format with influential guests from around the globe. This amazing tribe of diverse and accomplished women share their candid views on topics such as reputation, handling rejection, loyalty, what is sexy, overthinking, blended families, and much more. Discussions are joyful, with freedom to address topics from various perspectives with candor, respect, and no judgment. These are the conversations you wish you could have with all your family and friends. Dynamic women have lived their lives boldly, with unexpected and sometimes undesired turns in the road of life. Yet detours and bumps bring opportunity, personal growth, more authenticity, and a fresh outlook. Join our welcoming tribe of dynamic women each Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, also on iTunes, and more information at dynamicwomentalkradio.com. Celebrating vibrant, charismatic women everywhere. We continue our discussion with Scott Fowler about autistic children and parenting. And Scott, you mentioned before the break about... Law enforcement, and one of the purposes we wanted to do here in raising awareness for everyone is to 
make people more aware of some of the additional challenges. And I know that you talk to law enforcement about the autism community all the time. And perhaps you would share some of that with us today. I know it's short, but let's give it a try. Sure, absolutely. Um, A lot of my training seminars that I do for law enforcement and first responders We talk about, you know, certainly what the clinical picture is, but the real meat and potatoes is when they come on scene for whatever situation that they are involved in. And and, uh, we're talking about general global awareness here, but also Mm -hmm. situational awareness specific to uh, what they are dealing with when they respond to a situation uh, with an autistic person. We're talking about awareness, recognition, and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really germane to this conversation that we we bring out the fact that the autistic are seven times more likely to interface with law enforcement over the light of their lifetimes over the general population. Now that doesn't always necessarily mean a negative interaction, but uh, because oftentimes social misreads and miscues will cause uh, concerns, and I'll give two real quick examples. Um, you know, it presents a challenge for the autistic and for their family. So, for example, in my trainings with first responders, you know, we know the uh, smiley face scale. You know, you have the unhappy face on one side and the really happy face on the other. It's a 10-point scale. And they say, well, where are you? How do you feel? How is your pain? And to an autistic person, they don't attach any recognition to those faces. So that's not a good strategy for them to use. And the other piece that goes with it is I always coach them to move medial to distal and demonstrate first. So outside in. So demonstrate first because an autistic person, we talked a little bit about um, sensory issues. You know, oftentimes they have sensory misreads. For example, a couple of years ago, my son accidentally closed his hand in the storm door and it blackened and blued. And I thought for sure we had broken bones in the hand. Turns out it was badly bruised, but not damaged. His reaction was to laugh. He never cried. He never screamed. He never even withdrew his hand. Mm. Uh, But for little things, paper cut, uh, if his brother scraped him with the the Tonka truck on his leg, um, you know, you'd, you'd think we had a major grievous injury going on. So when I talk to first responders, you know, if they come across, you know, a car accident, an entrapment, a structure fire, and the autistic person is injured, a major in- injury may not necessarily represent that same way, but they have to be aware of it. When it comes to law enforcement, um, you know, we all see lots of stories of autistic children who go missing. And so one of the big things that we touch on with law enforcement is what they need to do and how they need to treat Uh, a situation with an autistic person missing because it really is an emergency. Um, It doesn't qualify for the Amber Alert, which um, the first qualification criteria is uh, evidence of abduction. So, uh, you know, that being as it is, when I do those trainings, but also when I do trainings to school systems or teacher groups or, you know, parent support groups. We talk about all these things. And I always encourage lots of discourse, lots of discussion. Um, We could spend an awful lot of time um, talking about any one particular issue. Um, But I think what's important is that we all have this openness and this awareness to learn and recognize. But as parents of children on the spectrum, 
Um, we also have a personal responsibility to educate those around us. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying necessarily um, you know, you need to go global with things, but certainly within your neighborhood, kind of quietly engaging your next door neighbors, making sure your child uh, who is autistic has needs, um, teaching your child to interface um, with them in an appropriate way. So God forbid there's an emergency in the home, my son knows to go to one of two next door neighbors. And if one's not home, to go to the other. Um, because he hasn't completely mastered the concept of talking on the phone just quite yet. Um, in addition to that, when we talk about law enforcement and first responders and awareness, they gain as much, if not more, when I take my child to the local police station or the fire station or EMS. And I do this frequently every couple of months where they are developing face recognition with my child mm -hmm. and they are learning a little bit about uh, some of his tendencies to the point now that if we ride by or um, if the kids are outside playing and, uh, you know, squad car or EMS happens to ride by, they wave and we'll, you know, give my son an extra little hi, Nicholas. How are you? You know, and so uh, that's important for two areas. Number one, so that they can better learn my child and have a better awareness globally. But also, secondly, you know, when we have little people, we do a lot of discussion about community helpers. And the autistic don't necessarily recognize, for example, a police officer. He has a badge. He wears a uniform. But they don't recognize necessarily his law enforcement responsibilities. Same with fire and EMS. They see the patches, the uniform. So um, it's important in terms of an awareness perspective. They might recognize them as community helpers, but they know, might not recognize that they're there to help them. So as we promote global uh, understanding, you know, both regionally and nationally uh, about autism and autism awareness, you know, it's really important that they are included in these discussions. But also, don't forget friends, neighbors, schools. We could do an entire segment on schools alone because it is startling. And I'm a professional educator, almost 30 years worth of experience. While there's a global understanding in schools, there is not the specific experience. So, you know, parents are trusting that the school communities at large are very aware of spectrum disorders. But unfortunately, the specifics of how to educate that child from the general classroom to the special educators um, is lacking in some circumstances. So a real area for us to continue to work on in terms of outreach and understanding. If you are a parent of an autistic child and you are moving in the military and changing schools as the children get older and pediatricians, as we already discussed, what are some ways that you can integrate yourself quickly into your new station? Great question, Linda. The first thing that I would tell parents to do is take their iPhone or a camera and wherever that duty station change happens to be. So in the, the, the D.C. metro area, we have several, but they could be going across the country. It might not just be regionally, certainly. But what is always true is something I touched on earlier, being that the autistic are visually aware. As long as you prepare them for the change, they will be accepting. And the way that you go about doing that is if your spouse is, say, going to Camp Pendleton or 29 Palms or wherever they happen to be going to, 
get them to take the camera, take pictures of the outside of where your living quarters are going Mm. to be, some pictures from inside, some pictures from the general area, as well as if you've got a, a large distance that you're covering. And if you are going to be driving, then get on the Internet and find landmarks because the autistic cling to visual representation to find space and security. Okay. So that would be the first thing that I would tell them to do. Secondly, you know, it's it's imperative um, as a parent of an autistic child, I keep copies of all of his school records at all times. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I know the school will send copies over, but I'll send uh, in copies ahead when he changes schools myself and then immediately request time to speak to the school administrator that is in charge. I know I routinely did it when I was a principal, uh, when we had uh, military changes of duty station. And, you know, when that happened, I had a long discussion to allow parents to educate me about their child. And so that's really important. You know, obviously, you know, we have some educators that are top flight. We have some that are mediocre. We have some that are still working on some things. But everybody appreciates a heads up. And so you provide that heads up and then you start introducing your child. So, for example, if the deployment happens or the change of duty station happens and you're pulling out end of May. Um, When I worked in northern Virginia, that was a typical uh, time cycle. And so parents are trying to sell a house, buy a house, move, get settled. And then uh, the military member would have to be, you know, engaged, you know, pretty quickly, obviously. So a lot of times that falls to the other parent. And so what happens in the autism space is one parent becomes the, the quote, caseworker. And so when you are the caseworker, you, you set up the visual schedule first. But if you're the parent that's a caseworker, you're laying the foundation all summer long. So my son has changed schools, and I will tell you typically we only handled that in the summer months so that I would have lots of time to take him into school, take him on school tours. Uh, And and we've been fortunate um, that the schools that our son has been in, um, the school staff has been very accepting of taking a look at what they can do to make some things easier. And then I would work with the school staff for pre-entrance for the next school year. So now we've got three stages. We've got the visual cueing piece on the whole move. Then we've got the uh, introduction to the school staff and then onboarding your child in small pieces. Never make any of these trips with your child more than a half hour. That's enough. They need to have a touch and you come out and then you come back maybe a week and a half later and do it again. But what you're doing now is setting up for the third picture schedule, first day of school. So every school has different policies and procedures, and you'll be made aware of them, obviously, through um, the different publications that they put out. But you are preparing all summer long for your child's transition, and then you are maintaining that transition for up to three weeks where you keep teaching those same sets of skills. Um, so that they don't run into a sensory situation in their new new school. Because obviously, if an autistic person is aware of their breakdowns and they are aware that they're the last person to want to have that happen, we also have the social order piece where now I've had a breakdown in school. And what do my friends think of me? What does my teacher think of me? And of course, as the parent depending on where that may occur. Other parents may view that 
and you don't want to set your child up for that. So obviously you want to take those um, proactive steps ahead of time. You know, Scott, I'm going to interject here because I want to give you enough time um, to explain, or I'll, I'll give them the website where they can find out more information, but perhaps you can also state a couple of other resources people can tap into. But to reach Scott or find out more information about his organization, you can go to mypieceofthepuzzle.org. And Scott, can you share additional resources that may be helpful to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, There are a couple of really top-flight resources that are completely free. Uh, I always tout uh, the Organization for Autism Research in Arlington. Uh, They produce uh, life journey guides um, for uh, all of the spectrum space. So, for example... Uh, the, the, the premier guide here is Life Journey Through Autism, a Guide for Military Families, and you can get that at researchautism.org. They have several other guides, including the Guide to Safety. We also have the Big Red Safety Toolkit available at nationalautismassociation.org and Safe and Sound, which is the Autism Society of America. Okay, Scott, I'm going to put these all on the website when we get this done, but I want to thank you so much for your time this morning and explaining something that I think all of us need more education on, and we appreciate you coming today. Thank you for listening to Mill Resource Radio. For more information, go to millresourceradio.com.